listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. At RxSafe, we believe in improving patient health by challenging conventional wisdom, upending the status quo, and transforming the retail pharmacy industry. Our innovative technology solutions are designed to accelerate your pharmacy's success and change the way you do business. We develop long-term partnerships with pharmacies and other industry innovators to help attract new customers, create additional revenue streams, and transform the traditional pharmacy model. Become the adherence packaging leader in your community and practice at the top of your pharmacy license. Get started today. Visit rxsafe.com. That's rxsafe.com to learn more. Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation, welcome to the next RX Safe Transforming the Role and Transforming the Pharmacy Industry. This is an exciting opportunity for us to come together and give our community pharmacy owners some really good content that you can use as programs that help to build your business, but more importantly, what it's doing for your community, what it's doing for your patients. You see your patients so much more than your primary care. Uh, Physician partners see your patients, you know this, uh, nine to 10 times more, your patients are coming to you with questions about vaccines, about vitamins, about different um, experiences, skin ailments. Um, There's so many things that, that come across the counter to you, the pharmacist, who they trust the most. And because of that, the Pharmacy Podcast Network has partnered with RxSafe to build components and build program information that you can take from subject matter experts and build programs around this for your community. We're excited today to welcome a four-part panel, four-person panel that is going to be talking about heart health, specifically pharmacist impact on heart health. Cardiovascular disease is highly prevalent. We're talking about four of every 10 Americans are suffering something to do with heart health. And this is costing our healthcare system $1.1 trillion estimated by 2035. This was noted by a published article in the Journal of American Heart Association. That is huge. And heart health is um, more important because it has other impacts on people's um, relationships and uh, being able to take care of themselves and staying at home instead of having to go to some uh, skilled nursing center. The pharmacist role is so important in this. Pharmacists can be that key source of support for an individual looking to manage their heart health and also to be able to manage those conditions that could be pre- you could do preventative care so that you don't end up having to um, be on a medication um, for the rest of your life. However, if you are, there's an aspect of adherence that can keep you uh, healthy and keep you safe, keep you alive. I want to welcome our panel. I want to start off with uh, Dr. Sandra. And Dr. Sandra Aweda, she is here today with us, um, and I, I want to welcome you to the RxSafe uh, panel. 
Hi, Todd, and uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I know that uh, we're going to probably introduce ourselves quickly. So I'm um, a uh, doctor in pharmacy. I graduate. I'm a foreign grad. I came to the United States maybe in 1999, and um, I worked at the Mass General Hospital for a few years as a clinical pharmacist, uh, as an attending pharmacist in the ICU and in the medical uh, floor. And uh, I taught at some universities, percepted few students as well while I was there. And um, after that, uh, I worked in Big Pharma. I was at Novartis in the medical information department. And uh, now I'm in Florida and uh, I work in private practice uh, in a cardiology uh, office. And I do, um, for the past three years, I've been implementing progressively a new um, innovative approach to preventative care. And so we have chronic care management. Uh, I started a remote patient monitoring as well, and now incorporated pharmacogenomics in, um, in our practice. That's my favorite <clears throat> word right now in pharmacy is pharmacogenomics. It's a whole nother series, and we'll have to have you back um, after today's um, presentation. Thank you so much for being okay. here. <laughs> Dr. Nathan Bryan, welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Network and the RxSafe uh, panel. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Todd. And it's certainly an honor and a pleasure to be amongst this um, expert panel here. As my name is Nathan Bryan. I'm uh, uh, an academician for the past 20 years. I've got a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Texas at Austin. And from there, I went to LSU School of Medicine, where I got a PhD in molecular and cellular physiology, and then did my postdoctoral training at Boston Medical Center up in Boston. And then um, was on faculty at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. Uh, for a number of years, and then from there, I went to Baylor College of Medicine. But uh, I've been in drug discovery and drug development for the past 20 years in an academic environment. I've uh, made a number of discoveries. Um, so today, I'm retired from full-time academia. I'm mainly an entrepreneur and run a number of companies, including a clinical stage drug company where we have a, a COVID drug, a nitric oxide COVID drug in phase three clinical trials. So we now have a long pipeline of uh, FDA uh, rooted or, or clinical drugs that were going for a number of different indications, including ischemic heart disease, pulmonary hypertension, even vascular dementia and Alzheimer's. Thank you for mentioning that, Dr. Bryan. We are going to be doing a whole series on clinical trials and the impact that pharmacists have on the trust that's built with the participants and the patients in that. So we'll have to ping you about that and get you involved. Sure. So thank you so much for being here. I want to introduce to everyone Dr. Brittany Messner, Messer. Um, Dr. Brittany, I'm so excited for you to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I'm what you would call a newer practitioner. Um, I graduated three years ago in May from Marshall University School of Pharmacy in Huntington, West Virginia. Um, I stayed local to do a PGY1 pharmacy residency at our local VA uh, medical center. And I'm lucky to, enough to work at Marshall Cardiology now. Um, so I'm the first in my position. I've built it from the ground up and I primarily work with the heart failure teams and I run our hypertension clinic. So we receive referrals from within Marshall Health, um, outside establishments now, which has been really cool. So my primary role is to optimize GDMT for heart failure in between clinic visits. Um, I do a lot of precepting with the School of Pharmacy. I precept our pharmacy residents and I'm adjunct faculty at the Physician Assistant School as well. Thank you so much for today and for being here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Jennifer Marquez, how are you? So excited that you're here, linked with you on LinkedIn, and it's uh, been fun to 
read up on some of your publications. Um, thank you and welcome to the RxSafe panel. Thank you, Todd. I'm so grateful to be here today and to have this opportunity to speak with these other panelists as well. Um, I went to pharmacy school at Auburn and got my doctor of pharmacy in 2002. And since then, um, completed a residency and have practiced in a number of progressive practice settings. I've worked in ambulatory care environments. I have worked in oncology for the last 17 years, and um, I've also managed an anticoagulation clinic. So I've had lots of experience with cardiology patients. And most recently, I founded a company um, where I do pharmacogenomics consulting called PharmDNA. And um, I love to see the impact that pharmacogenomics can have on drug therapy. So I'm very excited to be here today. We are as well. Thank you so much. For our listeners, if you're listening live, um, you can submit questions along the way during this webinar. If you're listening through podcasting, uh, don't worry. All the show notes will be down below. So if you're driving, jogging, chopping vegetables, do whatever you're going to do, don't worry. We can get the information and the contact of our panelists to you. Their LinkedIn will definitely be there. All right, let's jump in. Heart attack, stroke heart failure, arrhythmia, heart valve complications. Um, the list goes on and it's kind of scary when I started reading into this. I was like, oh yeah, let's do a heart health. And then I started reading and I started getting one of those, like, um, what do they call those pains where you feel for someone else? And I was like, oh, little chest pain. I was like, am I all right? And I'm like, okay, maybe I'll take my, <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll take my, um, my nitric oxide pill today. But I want to just start off with uh, Dr. Sandra. I want you to kind of give us an overview. Why are pharmacists positioned to be um, some of the best providers to help patients with heart health? Yeah, I think truly pharmacists are very well positioned and no matter what area of pharmacy they practice in, uh, of course, in community pharmacy, and I know most of our listeners are in community pharmacy, they are you know, the the closest to the people. They are, you know, the easiest persons to uh, do the outreach to uh, to patients. And, uh, you know, there was this number once that, that was thrown on screen for me and I was like, oh my gosh, I never thought about it. There are 67,000 pharmacies in the US and 15,000 Starbucks. So I think <laughs> just to put things in perspective, you know, how much uh, contact uh, and FaceTime opportunity pharmacists have uh, in uh, in Detail. But in the clinical setting, you know, in um, also in uh, practice, in private practice or in academia, um, it's really it impacts at three levels. I think it impacts um, the economic level, the humanistic level, and also uh, the um, outcome, uh, the clinical level. And we are very speaking of outcome. We are very well trained to be able to you know, assess the guidelines, look at, the, especially in heart disease, but since we're talking about it today, the AHA, the ACC, and apply it to our patients. Uh, the uh, humanistic approach is really knowing the patient, knowing that they have this dedicated team member uh, to uh, be able to sit down with, uh, share their concerns, share their side effects, and knowing that they have the time to do it and knowing that their problem will be addressed is invaluable. And uh, at the outcome level, really uh, mainly economic outcome, and this is the most exciting part for me right now is 
the the impact that we have with these new programs that pharmacists are involved in and i know there are um, a lot of uh, people trying to crunch the numbers to show how valuable that economic impact can be in decreasing hospitalizations and i'm sure we're going to talk about it uh, later on in the show thank you uh, dr nathan i look at the metrics i've read up on this to prepare for today's uh, webinar and I see a fine line between the preventative and then the reactive. Yeah. And I kind of want to get your gauge. I know pharmacists play roles on both sides of that fence, but where do you want to start? You want to start with pre preventative and giving some of our listeners and our pharmacists some, uh, some, some advice of where they sure. can start to, to care for their patients. Well, you know, the numbers don't lie. Cardiovascular disease remains the number one killer of men and women worldwide. And for me, that's simply unacceptable because we know how to diagnose cardiovascular disease. We know the symptoms and we know how to treat it and prevent it. So the problem is not the lack of tools, it's education and awareness. And so that I see is my job. Uh, I'm not a pharmacist. I'm, again, I'm a biochemist and physiologist, but I've worked in both academia, consulted for a number of drug companies and now on my own drug company. Um, but what's clear to me in terms of nitric oxide and heart health, whether it's heart disease or kidney disease, brain disease, it's all reduced blood flow. It's lack of blood flow to the effective organ. And that's a result of lack of nitric oxide production. So if, if, if we can train and teach not only pharmacists, but the patients and the general public on the awareness around nitric oxide and how they can test and get measures of endothelial function, recognize early symptoms of nitric oxide deficiency, whether it's a slight elevation in blood pressure or sexual dysfunction, and then employ lifestyle strategies. You know, stop doing the things that disrupt nitric oxide production and start doing the things that stimulate it and promote it. And then you can prevent disease. And that is the goal because we know that modern medicine today, it's not working. You know, 50% of the people that are given antihypertensive medications, the drugs don't work. So there's no benefit and not to even address the number of adverse side events from these drugs. So we've got to take a different approach and we've got to be proactive instead of reactive. And I think all that starts with proper education and taking a very complex science like cardiovascular physiology and nitric oxide biochemistry and putting it in a language that the pharmacist can then communicate to the patients that they understand it and then they can take control of their own health and prevent getting disease. That's the goal. Dr. Messer, um, you have experience at a health system level, and so many of your colleagues, I'm sure, are focused on heart attacks and things that are you know, happening within the hospital system. What have you found uh, to be kind of the, the sweet spots of where a pharmacist can truly make an impact on, on better heart health for our patients? Um, truly patient education, um, smoking cessation. So that's one thing that I've been lucky to have in our state at WVU Medicine and other hospital system, they offer a certified tobacco treatment specialist opportunity. So I participated in that and that's left a huge impact because a lot of the providers, they don't want to take time to do the smoking secession part, which is fine. So that's where pharmacists can come into play. We're the experts on that type of stuff after all. Um, dietary recommendations, um, that's a huge make basically lifestyle modifications um, in terms of actual medication. Um, I'm consulted a lot on my recommendation on lipid management. Um, that's huge here. 
following the guidelines, monitoring labs is huge because that's something we can easily do um, and give our recommendations on up titration of statins. Um, if a patient calls having any adverse effects, what's our next move? So I found that that's our biggest impact here at our establishment. Thank you so much. Dr. Marquez, I, you know, you, your readings, and I, I've been stalking you because I do that to every pharmacist that comes on one of our shows. And I've read up on Piedmont Health and in 20 plus years of your experience in this. What has this taught you to be able to disseminate your key findings to pharmacists listening right now with regards to heart health and, and just some some pearls that you can share with us? Well, my experience in a healthcare setting has just really given me lots of different opportunities in different patient populations, um, starting my career with um, in an ambulatory clinic where I had opportunity to interact with patients with diabetes, patients with metabolic syndrome, other conditions that are commonly encountered with cardiovascular disease, and to be able to round with providers and make recommendations for lipid management and um, hypertension. And, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting now working in an oncology environment and um, also working with anticoagulation patients to um, see the impact that a pharmacist can make. They can help with monitoring these drugs. I actually started and managed, took over management of um, anticoagulation patients here in a cancer center for three years. And uh, we actually had better outcomes we had less bleeding events and tighter control of the INR, but we know pharmacists a lot of times have a little more time to deal with these issues than um, some of the other healthcare providers. And um, pharmacists just really have an opportunity to shine when they are allowed to participate at a higher degree in drug therapy outcomes and decision-making processes. So that's been very rewarding. So I think of the conditions that I mentioned um, at the beginning and the opening. Um, I want to concentrate on stroke for just a second. And I want to come back to Dr. Sandra and just kind of unpack the fact that we know 87, 89 as high. I've seen metrics where there's a percentage of all strokes being, is it called a seismic stroke? Account for that. And it's the blockage of, of um, blood vessels that deliver blood and oxygen to the brain causing a stroke. And of course, all centered around your heart. So when I think of that, and I think of the world of adherence, and adherence isn't just a medication, it's a lifestyle. It's, a, it's being adherent to something, adherent to taking a walk, adherent to making sure that I'm not you know, eating too many cholesterol, you know, fatty foods or whatever it is. And you can, we could guess as consumers, I'm the consumer, so I could sit here and guess, but that's why we have pharmacists here. So around stroke, what specifically have you researched or have you found where there's an opportunity for pharmacists to educate their patients and then stay with their patients to build an adherence strategy to prevent stroke? Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about stroke is blood pressure control. You know, blood pressure control is definitely the leading cause of stroke. Uh, and the patients who are non-adherent to medication, like you said, the first thing that I tell them is really, you know, if you don't feel, because they always tell us, you know, but I don't, I feel okay. 
I don't think I need anything because I'm okay. And I tell them, how do you know you're okay? Um, and then it, they, of course, you know, don't really have the answer to that. But then when you put it in perspective for them is that, you know, you could have a stroke. This is a leading cause of stroke. They do pause and think about it. And I know it's not the subject today, but also progression to kidney disease. Those are very big deterrents for patients when we tell them that this is, this is why you need to have your blood pressure medication uh, um, taken or uh, manage your blood pressure and put it under control. Um, the biggest um, program that I think is doing a tremendous uh, impact on stroke prevention and other uh, cardiovascular uh, outcome, a negative outcome uh, around blood pressure is remote blood pressure monitoring. So we used to have this um, very episodal um, interaction with patient, you know, patient would come into the office, they either have a blood pressure reading from home or they don't, uh, they take it in the office, we take it for them in the office. And now we're really treating a very, you know, just one number. I mean, that's traditionally, uh, pro we progressed into asking patients to keep a blood pressure log. Sometimes they don't bring it. Sometimes they do. Uh, sometimes it's incomplete. Uh, sometimes they forget it. They say, oh, I, I did it. I wrote it. I promise I did, but I didn't bring it. And now with the fact that we can see their blood pressure on our portal, before they come in over the course of days and weeks and look at the average blood pressure is a tremendous help, first of all, to even start with even diagnosing blood pressure, you know, confirming the diagnosis of blood pressure for patients who are starting on new medications sometimes, you know, they, it was probably just like a, a white coat syndrome in the office uh, and at home they are perfectly um, uh, controlled. So these are, I think this is one big thing of a stroke prevention and bringing them sooner. So bringing them to goal much sooner because we are able to see their numbers. We call them, we do the telehealth or we bring them for in office visit so they don't wait for three to four weeks for a follow-up because we see that they actually need their medication to be tailored according to what we, where we want them to be. Nathan, we you mentioned nitric oxide and that's something that I'm taking myself just based on talking with several pharmacists, including uh, Dr. Lisa Fast, who um, talked to me about um, Berkeley Life, and I've been on that for about six months now. Um, I do see a difference. I feel um, more energy in the morning. I still drink that cup of coffee, so I think that in, in combination with that is giving me extra pep. But um, there's the sexual health side of things that I definitely see an impact. I'm going to be 50 this summer, but I'm starting to pay attention to my health a lot better than I used to. And that's been kind of part of my new regimen based on what I've read, as well as the, um, the, 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 was it the Pulitzer Prize or? Um, <clears throat> Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize that was done on nitric oxide. Exactly. So I was really fascinated by that. Can you kind of talk about nitric oxide specifically and why it's a heart health tool that a pharmacist could um, to, could recommend and feel feel um, that they're not just talking about some hey here's another supplement take this it's it's backed by scientific information. Yeah, so it's you know every major human chronic disease is a result of lack of blood flow and lack of nitric oxide production. So on the the topic of stroke, you know a stroke because you have diseased blood vessels. It's not because you have heart disease. Heart disease results from endothelial dysfunction and uh, insufficient perfusion to the heart. 
And it's because the blood vessels, the coronary arteries get inflamed, they get plaque built up, the plaque becomes unstable and it ruptures. If it ruptures in a coronary blood vessel, it's a heart attack. If it ruptures in a cerebral blood vessel, it's an ischemic stroke. So it's systemic disease. That's the problem. And you cannot separate heart disease from vascular dementia and Alzheimer's to kidney disease and renal insufficiency. It's all the same problem. You've got a diseased blood vessel that can't make nitric oxide. And the consequences of that is you have increased inflammation, oxidative stress, and immune dysfunction. It's characteristic of every single disease, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease. I mean, it's all the same problem. So that's the importance of nitric oxide. If your blood vessels are healthy, the endothelial cells, the cells that line the blood vessels, can make nitric oxide that maintain their barrier function. And that barrier function is much different in the brain than it is in the heart and the liver. So there's local control, and that local control is mediated by the ability of those endothelial cells in that vascular bed to make nitric oxide, to dilate the blood vessels, to perfuse those regions upon need. Same thing with the sex organs. If you have sexual dysfunction, that means that you have vascular dysfunction. You cannot dilate the blood vessels to get engorgement. If you're trying to recall memory and you can't dilate the blood vessels to the prefrontal cortex, you can't recall memory. You get vascular dementia. The mechanism is all the same, and it all revolves around the production of nitric oxide. You can't make nitric oxide. You have a hypoperfusion of organs. Your blood pressure goes up. You have more damage to the blood vessels, and it's a vicious cycle. The only way to stop that vicious cycle is to restore the production of nitric oxide. Unfortunately, you know, through my 20 years of research, I have dozens of issued patents. Uh, we've commercialized a lot of this. We have, you know, many clinical published randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials showing the benefits of this. So we started out in the supplement space because I don't know if a lot of people, if your audience knows, but nitric oxide is a gas. It's a gas that's produced the lining of the blood vessels. It's gone in less than a second. So we figured out how to make a solid dose of nitric oxide that you can put in your mouth and allow the body to metabolize this and generate nitric oxide gas. Um, so that's the trick, and that's been really the hurdle for big pharma to develop drugs for the past 30 years. Everybody's been unsuccessful because they didn't realize kind of the physical chemistry of nitric oxide, and we cracked, we solved that puzzle. So the key word that he just said, um, uh, Jennifer, was metabolization, and immediately makes me think of you for your passion in pharmacogenomics and assuring that the medications that we're taking are, in fact, working as designed as should be based on that testing. Can you kind of give our listeners how you've incorporated PGX into the world of cardiovascular health and even give us some examples of, of what you've learned? Absolutely. Um, pharmacogenomics is the interplay of how your genes and your drugs interact with one another. And um, when the mapping of the human genome project um, happened. They began to identify the genes that were associated with drug metabolism, and um, they have found out so much information about um, drugs, toxicities, um, efficacy, and um, a large portion of the pharmacogenomic genes um, 
do interfere with cardiovascular agents. So agents, one of the, the most well-known is Plavix or Clopidogrel. And we know that about a third of the population lacks sufficient enzyme activity to activate that prodrug. And so in those patients, it is not likely to be as effective or in some patients not effective at all. So that puts patients who have um, AMI and need a stent and they, they get put on Plavix, if they lack that enzyme activity and they can't activate the drug, then they're at much higher risk of having a second heart attack, developing stroke, uh, because they're basically on an inactive drug. And in that case, we would make recommendations for those patients to try an alternative agent that is likely to be effective for them. So that's one example. Um, you know, patients that do have clots that need to go on warfarin um, as someone that has dealt with warfarin before, and it's a nightmare at times. <laughs> um, they have identified four genes, probably more, but four um, that are involved with warfarin metabolism. And there's actually an online tool you can use that will take a patient's specific genetic allele results, along with other factors um, like smoking, liver disease, concurrent drugs, and you can use their genetic results. And this calculator will help you decide an initial dose for warfarin. And for somebody that did this 10 years ago and didn't have this technology, that is just mind blowing that you can figure out how to best dose someone with warfarin from their genetics. That's just amazing. Um, other examples uh, would be statin therapy. So we know there are genes associated with um, statin myopathy and toxicity. So we can predict which patients may have that toxicity and maybe choose alternative agents that are less likely to cause those issues. It's just very fascinating and it's really led to improvements in patient care for patients with cardiovascular disease. So I think of the starting point of where the the patient is getting a super intense amount of attention, and that is the emergency room. They came in, they're in an ambulance, they had a heart attack, maybe they went unconscious, the, the ambulance crew, EMS brought them back, everything's there, now they rushed into the emergency room, they go through the process of whatever they go through, the physician saves their lives, now it's time to get them you know, in a, in a position of recovery. And at that point, it's a wake up call, this individual, uh, let's say it's, you know, it's me, it's, I, I wake up, I'm like, wow, what happened? And now it's time for me to meet with the discharge and the, and, and the, the pharmacist and in walks in uh, Dr. Brittany and she's like, you know, Todd, you're a mess. Um, you probably wouldn't say it that way. Uh, let's start <laughs> you on a regimen of medications to assure that XYZ is taken care of. Brittany, take us through, because I'm sure that that's an actual situation that you've probably been through on numerous of times, but take us through how do we go from that bedside situation in coaching to the, the patient falling off in adherence and then coming back to the emergency room or unfortunately maybe dying because they didn't pay attention? 
This is where I feel like pharma, pharmacists can make the biggest impact. Um, I, do, I do a lot of transitions of care, and you're correct. I would not probably call them a mess, but my first thing first, I work with the medical team to see, okay, what's our plan? Are we all on the same page? And a lot of times they'll ask me my recommendations. Um, so once I know what I'm walking into in regards to like, okay, this is our plan for discharge in terms of the medications, I like to talk with the patient find out honestly their social situation because the first thing I look for is barriers to success. Um, are those a, Is that something I can aid with? Do I have any recommendations or resources I can provide to them? Because I do work in a very rural area. So that's huge. A lot of times it can be as small as, well, I can't call in my refills because I can't read or write. And that's a real life situation I've encountered. And it's sad, but that's the good part of this I'm able to figure out like, hey, okay. And I know this is, a, I do not do this for every patient, but okay, how can I do this? He doesn't have a caregiver. He doesn't have any relatives that help him. If I can mark on my calendar once a month when his refills do, he actually, I got him set up with our pharmacy here at Marshall Health. We have an outpatient pharmacy we use. Um, I called him and said, hey, Mr. So-and-so, it's, it's due for his refills, do it. Like that's taken care of. So utilizing the resources you have available to. I'm lucky to have an outpatient pharmacy we can use. Um, they mail the patients. So say we live two hours away. It's hard for us to get out of our hauler. It's hard for us to get transportation. Okay, what can I do to make sure they're able to get the meds? Um, say it's just a compliance issue. Well, I just forget. Easy recommendation. Do you got a cell phone? Yes. Set an alarm on your phone daily. Um, we always think of the pillbox, but just by the big thing for me is trying to just narrow down, okay, what's our barrier here and how can we overcome that? Talk to them if they're blessed enough to have a caregiver at home, talk with them because a lot of times I see, especially in our elderly patients, it's the children or the um, spouse taking care of them in that situation. Um, just preach compliance. A lot of times where I am in a position to do transitions of care, I do a one week follow up. Okay, how are we doing? If I think it's going to be more of a situation like, hey, they probably need a sooner follow up, go ahead and get that. Um, making sure they keep their appointments. Nursing and the discharge papers may tell them that, but just making sure like, hey, this is the important part. Not just compliance, not just the medications, but make sure you're taking the recommendations you've been um, taught upon discharge, making sure you're following the lifestyle modifications if you're able, because not everybody can exercise 30 minutes a day. I see a lot of transplant LVAD patients. That's not practical. So just um, trying to narrow down for them what works for them and their home life, essentially, and making sure that they have the resources to overcome their barriers is huge. Thank you so much for that. One of the key uh, terms, conditions, chronic conditions that I'm hearing about, Sandra, is hypertension and how this turns. It could be you know, prevented, obviously, through maintaining healthy weight or eating a, a, a diet full of vegetables or, or something that's um, in, in, with less trans fats and less sugars, cutting back on your salt, um, exercising regularly, limiting your alcohol, managing stress. It sounds, you know, we can rattle that off, but sometimes in, in the real world, it's it's hard to do all of those things to prevent hypertension and or um, bring down the hypertension level that becomes very dangerous for a patient's life. What I'm trying to build through the puzzle pieces of today's webinar for our listeners and our community pharmacy owners are programs that they can put together 
but break it down into sections that are palatable, that we can bite on them as a, as a communicator, as an educator, as a healthcare destination for our community pharmacies. Can you kind of break down hypertension specifically and kind of give our listeners a, kind of a, a maybe a mini <laughs> blueprint of how to actually manage that from a preventative aspect, but then also dealing with the chronic disease state as a, a, in itself? Sure. Uh, so maybe like talking about how to start a remote patient monitoring program. Is that what you that would be? Would that'd be terrific because I want to talk to you more about the technology that we can employ too through remote patient monitoring. Yeah. So I think with um, remote patient monitoring and but also in chronic care management, you really need a software system to support that. So you need a portal for the monitoring of, um, you know, the weight or the blood pressure, whichever vital that you're choosing to monitor. Uh, and same thing for the chronic care management. You need something to track the patients monthly because this is a monthly service that we provide. And just to uh, jump back a little bit on um, uh, the previous discussion, about you know the continuation of care that Dr. Messer was talking about is chronic care management provides this service. Not all pharmacists are as great a Dr. Messer as at following up with their patients once they leave the hospital because once they leave the hospital, they are very confused as to, okay, I came in with something very different than what I left with. And if there was no medication reconciliation, there is this room, uh, this opportunity for intervention that really impacts patients tremendously. Uh, they're usually older patients, they have dementia. And so they really need need the support system to coach them as to what medication to take. And this in-between visits that the chronic care management provides uh, is the biggest value. They know they have someone to call. They know someone to have the questions. But um, And that's a completely different subject that we can talk to you about for two hours about you know, what other benefits that brings, not only to the patient, but also to the practice itself to have a chronic care management program uh, set up. But to go back to your question for RPM, uh, for remote patient monitoring, we do we chose to do a blood pressure, um, and you could do vitals also like weight for heart failure patients as well because you know we know all everybody knows the issue of you know water retention, uh, and you know changing sudden changes in one or two pound weights within twenty four hours. This all needs to be tracked, but to um, for RPM specifically, um, we need to vet. Uh, which vendor we want to use if we are using uh, a, a vendor to send the devices to the patient because the devices need to be sent to patient's home or they can be set up in the practice. This is really a preference that the practice itself you know, chooses to, uh, to do. Um, the portal, how accessible the portal is, how the alert comes in, uh, how do we pay for the portal? So understanding the business as well of remote patient monitoring is a very big uh, factor because you need to justify the expense as well. I mean, how much is it going to be paid for by Medicare? Uh, who covers it? Um, so there's a lot of components involved besides the clinical aspect and, of course, the uh, financial uh, outcome, beneficial outcome on the society at large and on healthcare expenditure at large, but also to the practice itself. And this really needs to be weighed in to set it up. And I've helped several pharmacists do that. Um, and uh, they, I connected with them through LinkedIn because they, the need is tremendous. You know, they like, you just tell me, how did you set it up? And 
um, there's a tremendous opportunity for pharmacists, not only in private practice or academia, but also in um, in community pharmacy. I know Dr. Amina Abu Bakr and um, uh, Jessica. Claire. Yep. Yes, thank you. Thank you. They have published a great uh, study in uh, last year in 20, end of 2020, where they did implement a, uh, a type of chronic care management. Oh, thank you. You are very well prepared. <laughs> wow. Okay, great. Uh, and uh, yeah, so they do discuss how they did it and the challenges that it involved. And um, uh, so it is being implemented in uh, community pharmacy as well. So listeners, uh, my favorite people, pharmacist providers out there, you have an opportunity to package this together. It's not packaged for you because your community pharmacy is different than everybody's. Um, your resources, the technology that you employ, the pharmacy software system that you have, it's a little different, but there's an opportunity to announce to your community that you have a program, a clinic, a class, something to bring them in to educate your patient first, to let them know that you're prepared to invest in their heart health and being able to do a collection of different things to help them understand the importance of heart health, whether that's preventative or if it's after an occurrence of a heart attack or something that was very serious that came from uh, an occurrence that they experienced. Regardless, you're the key. You are the healthcare destination. So think about this, nitric oxide, nutrition, exercise, remote patient monitoring, um, follow-ups, maybe a clinic, maybe this clinic has uh, meetings once every two months, or maybe it's part of a, um, a community center gathering um, that, that is a community, communicating this to your, your community. But I absolutely agree with what Dr. Messer was saying what Dr. Brian was saying, Dr. Marquez and Dr. Awada has said that they're all saying the exact same thing and that is education first. So I kind of want to come back to Dr. Brian and talk about adherence. And that is, so now I'm a community pharmacist. I'm listening to this. I have an RX safe system that allows me to package medications to make it very easy for my patients to strip off their 8 a.m. dose, their 12 p.m. dose, their 4 p.m. dose. Should the prescribed medications also accompany something else that a patient should be taking, you know, AKA uh, nitric oxide? And who is this for? And what's the base case, case scenario to kind of introduce this to my patient base? Yeah, great question. And I'll just take a step back and address the hypertension because hypertension is the number one modifiable risk factor for the number one, number one killer of men and women worldwide, which is cardiovascular disease. So remote patient monitoring is important, but it's only important if you act on the data. And as I mentioned, 50% of the people that are put on antihypertensive medications, their blood pressure is not managed. Two out of three Americans have an unsafe elevation in blood pressure, and two out of three Americans use mouthwash every day. We posted on this several years ago. It's not a coincidence. We've clearly defined the mechanism of dysbiosis of the oral microbiome and hypertension. In fact, I was part of a National Institute of Health expert working group years ago. There's a clear association now, really well-defined, that if you have dysbiosis, we focus on the oral microbiome, that it's hypertension is a symptom of oral dysbiosis. So if you have unmanaged blood pressure, and this explains resistant hypertension, so your blood pressure is not, not normalized with ACE inhibitors or ARBs because you don't have a random angiotensin problem. 
Calcium channel antagonists don't normalize your blood pressure because you don't have a dysregulation of calcium. You have oral dysbiosis because whether you use an antiseptic mouthwash that kills the good bacteria that generate nitric oxide, or you're using fluoride-based toothpaste, which acts as an antiseptic and kills the good bacteria and disrupts the oral microbiome, the result is the same or the consequence is the same. You become nitric oxide deficient and you have high blood pressure. The other problem is antacids, specifically proton pump inhibitors. It completely shut down nitric oxide production. In fact, patients who've been on PPIs for three to five years have a 40% higher incidence of heart attack and stroke. Again, the mechanism is well-defined and published in the it's, it's monitoring, but being able to understand the mechanism and the etiology and individual patients to understand why do you have high blood pressure? The other problem is a magnesium deficiency. So from my experience, if you get people using mouthwash, stop using mouthwash, allow the microbiome to repopulate and become diversified, replete magnesium, and get off certain drugs that are causing nitric oxide deficiency, the body heals itself. That's the magic of the human body. It heals itself, provided you give it what it needs. But going back now to, 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 phase, to, to kind of phrase your question, I think medication is important if you have to be on it and, and manage it. But I think it's more important to give your body what it needs. Most diseases, chronic diseases, are caused from nutrient deficiencies. So you've got to replete what the body's missing. So our approach is, look, if you're on medication or some type of pharmacotherapy to manage a chronic condition or even an acute condition, then that's fine. That's kind of the life that's. But then let's get to the root cause. And nitric oxide is kind of the, I think, the savior molecule from, I mean, obviously I have a very strong bias, but I think the clinical and scientific data corroborate that. That if you start to restore the body's production of nitric oxide, blood pressure rises, markers of inflammation go down, you perfuse organs better, including the sex organs, the heart, the brain, every tissue. So the body performs better if you have an open highway to get oxygen and nutrients to individual organs, tissues, and cells of the body. So that's our approach. I think if you send them home with medication, there are certain, certain medications will actually lead to a depletion of certain nutrients. And I think pharmacists understand that better than anybody. So you know, if you're taking statins, you have to take CoQ10. If you're taking antacids, you have to replete B vitamins and iron and iodine, things that you need stomach cancer for. But the body will never heal without, heal without, stomach, with, without stomach cancer. So best case scenario, you can begin to wean patients off drugs. I think that's the conversation both physicians and pharmacists need to do because that conversation's never, never happened. You put on medication, you go back to your doctor, oh, that's not working, let's put you on another medication. That's the wrong approach. We have to change the conversation, say, what's going on in your body, your individual body? Let's address it to where we can eventually get you off of these drugs when we're not dealing with an acute crisis. So I want to talk about the sensitivity of that communication between the primary care physician and the pharmacist. And the majority of time from my experience in talking with so many community pharmacy owners, that communication is there and it's it's healthy and there isn't really any issues, but we know we don't live in a perfect world and the tension between uh, a physician and a pharmacist can, can come into uh, play. And I'm wondering, Jennifer, in you understanding um, PGX, for example, you may find out, hey, the, the medication that your physician has prescribed you um, isn't working 
as it's intended, as it was designed to do. Therefore, I'm going to make a suggestion to your physician um, to change that medication. Um, talk to me about maybe a, an instance that that was an experience that you had and and then communicate with our pharmacy owners listening in right now some of your advice of how to actually approach that. Absolutely. This is something that I actually dealt with yesterday. <laughs> um, part of my business model is I market directly to patients. So patients actually come directly to me to get a pharmacogenomics consultation and comprehensive medication evaluation done. Um, so I work with patients directly, but I also work directly with providers. Uh, so if a patient comes to me directly and we almost always have a finding that is significant um, for at least one of their medications, then um, there is definitely an art to communicating with a physician that has not asked for your advice, um, but you're providing it. And um, I just make sure to be very clear, I do prepare uh, soap notes. And so in that note, I make it clear that this is a service that the patient has pursued on their own and um, that I'm providing the communication to them as a part of my consult with the patient that the patient has requested, you know, that I share my recommendations for therapy. And I just make sure to be clear about the fact that especially for pharmacogenomics, we have evidence-based guidelines that are regularly updated, freely available. And I actually quote the guidelines in my notes so that the physicians are very familiar with clinical guidelines. So they're more receptive when they know something is evidence-based and they can see it, even if they're not familiar with it or familiar with the terminology. So um, it, it is, uh, it can be, interesting sometimes when you're, uh, like I said, giving advice to people that didn't ask for it. But um, once they see the, the evidence there, I've had good success with providers being very receptive and um, listening to the recommendations and considering those. And um, I've seen some wonderful results with patients. It's, it's very rewarding um, and it, it's very exciting. Um, it can be a little scary though. So it's, it's understandable. You want to be very careful with how you approach your communication, but um, you know, pharmacists are pros at, at communicating with physicians and, and standing their ground. So um, it's, it's a natural process. Brittany, this is your cue because you're surrounded by physicians all day long that you work with and some you probably work with very well and others maybe not so much. But uh, recently the American Medical Association um, was arguing basically with pharmacists re with regards to test to treat initiatives governing uh, COVID-19 therapies and therapeutics and um, pharmacists are lifting their hands up and they are saying, we're the medication experts. We don't yeah. want to be the physician. We want right. to be a pharmacist. Would you please let us be pharmacists? What do you say um, to our listeners that, that want to understand that communication for better heart health specifically? So as she mentioned, stand your ground. I always say, if you're not 100% sure, 
offer to look it up. In this stance, you have to present with confidence, respect, of course, but with confidence, because if you don't, they're going to be like, yeah, okay, go on your way and not take you seriously. So that's the biggest thing. I know I came into this position and I was like, Ooh, you know, cardiology can have the stereotypical, like, oh, they're hard to talk to. Um, just showing like, okay, this, these are my skills. This is why I know um, I'm here for a reason. And just kind of, I call it earning the street cred. So show your worth. And that's the biggest things I preach to my pharmacy residents. I'm like, if you want to be taken seriously, you need to show that you can do good work. You need to answer questions with confidence. So yeah, going back to that scenario, I think just present with respect, but show like this, this is what I have to say. This is why I'm saying it. And always go back to guidelines, go to your primary literature, um, updates, journals, anything you can find to back up your answer, but make sure you go to them with confidence. So that way you can earn your street credit. Excellent. Thank you for that. Sandra, I want to come back to you because I'm thinking, you know, if I'm a community pharmacist and I have a a program that I've designed that includes pharmacogenomics, um, adherence packaging, coaching, education, nitric oxide, evidence-based medicine to kind of wrap all around it. And I send a PDF to um, a physician and saying, you know, here's what we'd like to do. It, 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 I can't help but to think that the physician would applaud that and they'd say, you know, this is amazing. But what, what about that communication of such a program to get the blessing from that primary care physician? Yeah, and it's, it's very interesting you mentioned this today because uh, yesterday there was a very interesting 30-minute presentation uh, on the GTMRX uh, MRX, uh, website on the value-based proposition of pharmacists doing those interventions. And uh, the University of South Carolina is working on an amazing program. I think it's called the Right um, Drug Act or Collaborative something. And uh, they are in the process of publishing it. And they've been uh, actually, you know, they start slow. They don't start, you know, by saying, okay, we want to take over all your patients uh, and take care of them doing those, all those services for them. I think this is a very important way to approach it is to, uh, you know, like a pilot type of, uh, type of type of intervention. And then this will show value and uh, will help them proceed further into expanding their program. Another um, strategy I think is very uh, key is that Physicians are burned out. They have so much on their plate. They see so many patients and they have such little time to spend. So if we touch on their pain points, which is really, you know, I'll take care of that. You know, I'll answer your patient uh, medication questions. I will uh, monitor or we, you know, depending on how, how, who you are, right, pre presenting this, uh, this uh, program, we will be able to look at their, um, uh, for instance, diabetes, um, uh, re uh, blood sugar readings. We will manage that. Uh, we will look at their um, blood pressure readings. We will look at their weight. It takes a lot of their plate. And so it doesn't take much for a physician to say, you know what, if I have someone, you know, who is doing this, the nitty gritty of chronic care, uh, chronic disease management, and I can focus on, let's say, depending on the specialty, you know, whatever they're actually, you know, need to be treating. Um, it, it's not a hard seller, I, I would say, and especially now, and uh, this is what actually the University of South Carolina is doing. They're partnering with payers 
uh, and uh, um, and uh, the PCPs and try to find a way to for pharmacists to be paid for the service. And obviously, you know, trying to buy in on the physicians because it does bring a lot of uh, refers also to the practice because it brings it brings up the patient satisfaction. Uh, it brings up the um, the uh, out, you know it makes better outcome for the patient and uh, patients come back and ask for it and I think they've had such an amazing feedback from patients that they had to ask uh, physicians uh, the healthcare actually system ask the physicians why is it that we have suddenly such ex uh, amazing ratings uh, that from patients and it is it really coincided with the service where pharmacists were actually spending this time with their patients. So I think this, those are really good points, you know, that will help uh, uh, physicians um, on board. And I have to also definitely agree with everything that was said before about the guidelines. For PGX, for instance, we do pharmacogenomics for uh, clopidogrel in our practice, and it was only post-ACS and post-PCI where we had guidelines for that. And recently with the January 2022 uh, update, it really expanded to all neurovascular, or I mean, a lot of neurovascular indications. So it was was definitely a door opener for neurovascular uh, and neurologist to start um, accepting and incorporating PGX in their decision making. So uh, Nathan, my favorite people are Brittany and Jennifer and Sandra, just because they're pharmacists and I'm a I'm a fanboy. So um, <laughs> you know you're the researcher of the group, but you present an extremely interesting. Um, background and in really leveraging your evidence-based studies. So if you were a pharmacist and you were in the place of Sandra, Jennifer, or Brittany, and you were, were, were trying to communicate with a, um, with a physician about evidence-based study to kind of back up a program that you were launching, <clears throat> talk to us about how you would communicate that and, and, and be specific around nitric oxide as well. Yeah, so I come from a, a little different background with a, with a degree in biochemistry and then molecular and cellular physiology. You know, I think I have a pretty good understanding of how the body works. And now drugs are completely different and how the drug body interaction is a, is a much more complex science. So uh, I can see where they're your favorites. They're becoming some of my favorites too. And I've, you know, I think pharmacists are some of the most important healthcare uh, providers out there because they understand the the interactions, the drug-drug interactions, the pharmacokinetics, now the pharmacogenomics. Um, but for me, in terms of nitric oxide, my job, and I think everyone's job, physician's job, would be to get people off drugs. We have the technology now that we understand the extent and mechanism of every single human chronic disease to the extent that we can fix it. We know what goes wrong in people with heart disease, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, and now we have the technology to diagnose it and give the body what it needs for the body to heal itself. And in my 20 years of research on nitric oxide, it's become very clear to me that the body cannot and will not heal or perform until you restore the production of nitric oxide. Now, it's not a silver bullet. It's not an end-all, be-all, cure-all. There are other problems you have to deal with. But you cannot fix these problems, whether it's hormonal, whether it's uh, neurological, until you restore the blood supply to that particular organ. And you do that, the only way you do that is through nitric oxide. And you have pleiotropic effects of nitric oxide. You suppress the vascular inflammation, you decrease oxidative stress, you decrease the immune dysfunction. That's hallmarks of any major chronic disease. So for me, for any program, whether it's kind of an adjuvant for pharmacotherapy, 
nitric oxide is the first, should be the first consideration for anything because you have to get oxygen nutrients to every single organ, tissue, and cell of the body. And then if you want to deliver drugs, specifically if they're you know, neurotropic drugs for neurological disease, those parts of the brain are ischemic because they don't have blood flow. So what do you do to deliver those drugs? You know, we did this 15 years ago where we were, you know, loading nanoparticles with nitric oxide for directed chemotherapeutic agents directly to the hypoxic tumor environment. So the science is there. Now you don't have to do that. You can, we have technology that produces nitric oxide in the human body. You open up the resistant vessels, lowers blood pressure. You open up the small blood vessels, perfuse, you know, individual tissues and cells of the body. That's the basis. And I think everybody wins from that because it gives, you know, the pharmacist a better indication of how the body is going to work. We can normalize that. You get adequate perfusion to all organs. Pharmacokinetics and pharmaco um, uh, are much more predictable if the vascular function and structure of patients become normal. Um, and then you begin, begin to have the discussion of weaning people off drugs specifically statins, proton pump inhibitors. I mean, those are the two that are, I think, the risk-benefit analysis is way tilted for the risk instead of any known benefit. So I think that's the program you got to start. It's, look, it's the same theme. It's education. And where does it start? You know, I think Brittany had a very good point. It's very hard to train physicians. It's like teaching an old dog new trick. So to train physicians on the importance of nitric oxide that aren't cardiologists or pulmonologists that are used to, you know, giving nitroglycerin, a nitric oxide donor to angina patients or pulmonary hypertension, you know, you have to start. So we started with educating the consumers. And I think in this particular venue here, we have to educate all people that have a point of care and interaction with both patients and consumers. That's the program. It's education, but it's educating the proper science. And that's very important. There are a lot of charlatans out there, especially in the supplement world. And you have to be able to distinguish real science from fraudulent marketing uh, by some companies out there. So I think that's, that's the game we got to play. And I think the only way we're going to make a huge difference in healthcare is through education and reaching the masses. Absolutely. And amen. And I love the fact that you said, um, you know, the, the fake, meds and the fake um you know information that's out there it's it's that it's that place of trust it's evidence-based study it's evidence-based practice it's it's following up on your your continuing education and just continuing to fill your your mind with the next innovative um way of taking care of patients i am so excited about this if you're listening in this has been an amazing panel i want to say thank you to dr Eweada. I want to say thank you to Dr. Brian. Thank you so much, Dr. Messer, for being here. Dr. Marquez, um, we'll, we'll be following up with you very soon. But Pharmacy Podcast listeners, uh, RX Safe, um, a special thank you to the RX Safe team for doing this for us today and sponsoring this content for us today. There is so much to put together. You are not alone. If you're listening to this right now, you're a pharmacy owner, you can reach out to the RX Safe team. Their marketing team is so educational driven and based that we can get you plugged in with a remote patient monitoring solution or we can get you plugged in with pharmacogenomics or an adherence program regardless you are not alone so this is just the tip of the iceberg to really dig down into pharmacists um, important the role of pharmacists in heart health 
And with that, I thank you so much for listening today. And I thank you to our panelists. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Thank you.